Right now, before we have the Lord's Supper, we can turn our attention to the subject at hand, which I've entitled A Personal Relationship with Jesus. Uh, Let's just go and read a verse first, then we'll come back to what I mean by that, I guess. The passage here in Revelation chapter 3 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Now, of course, the book of Revelation is full of symbolic language, but I don't think I can't help but look at this scripture and make a couple of deductions from this simple text. Uh, isolated even from the rest of the letter that's being written here to the church at Laodicea. And that is that, number one, he's speaking to an individual. If anyone hears my voice. So he's speaking about a person, an individual. He doesn't frame it in this verse in the sense of the church as some organic unity or some group, but he talks about individuals. If anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and dine with him. Now that's a pretty personal relationship that's being established in that case. And yet I'm afraid when we begin to look at this this phrase that you hear it so much today, have a personal relationship with Jesus or that Jesus is my personal Savior, that there are theological, historical reasons why that became popular uh, more or less during my lifetime, last 20 or 30 years, why that phrase has become popular, that are not grounded in the understanding of the Bible that's very well, that's very, uh, a very good understanding of the Bible. For various reasons. I'm going to look at some of those today. But the first thing I want you to understand about this phrase, having a personal relationship with Jesus, is that that's not biblical language per se. You can say, well, the concept could be. And that's right. But when you have phrases that you use to describe things that are not biblical, you're always got to be careful about that. How often have I talked to you about using Bible words for Bible things? When you find words that are in the Bible or concepts, you better be able to find the concept in the Bible, and then if you want to put a label on that that's not biblical, then be careful about that. Most of the time, you're better off just putting the Bible label on it, if you can, calling it what it is. Like, we don't call this out here the Eucharist, because the Bible never calls the Lord's Supper the Eucharist. It calls it, it it may be a good gift, that's what the word Eucharist means, but the Bible calls it the Lord's Supper or the communion. So, we try to limit our language in reference to this to those two things. doesn't call it the Passover or the Christian Passover. doesn't call it that, as some people do. So when you begin to use non-Bible language for things, you, you're always opening yourself up to different concepts. That's, that's what's so dangerous about the way that uh, all these words in our language today are being redefined by social movements and political movements. Or, or they're being changed, you know. Because whenever you change language and terminology, you change concepts. And you can start off here, but you're going to end up over there. There's a reason why it's like that. I read, listened to a lecture yesterday by Jay Adams, a founder of Biblical Counseling. He's he since passed away about schizophrenia. So when you, you when you let secular psychologists or psychiatrists def, define terms and you put that term on yourself, schizophrenic, what does it mean? Well, it's meant a lot of things in history. Basically, he says it means acting oddly. Someone who acts oddly. Well, guess what? Okay? Everybody can be called a schizophrenic. And it's used this way. But the Bible never does talk about human beings in terms of schizophrenia. 
it talks about sin and other behaviors, other little odd things, quirks that people have. They're not really pathological. They're just quirks that people have. Or you take the word shy. The Bible doesn't describe people as being shy. Shy becomes an excuse for people to withdraw from the world or not interact properly or whatever. But the word, the Bible talks about people having pride, so much pride that they won't open their mouth because they're afraid they'll be embarrassed. Talks about that. That you can be the kind of person who doesn't ever want to be embarrassed by anything or stick their neck out so you just remain silent or or whatever. So, But there's Bible terms for Bible things. So personal relationship with Jesus is not biblical language. And yet, so, but yet there's something there. That's true. So let's take a look at the this idea of this personal relationship with Jesus that people have. What kind of how is this relationship that people have with Jesus Christ as and I'm speaking here of Christians? How is it defined in the Bible? By on what categories? What people today mean by that? Sometimes we'll come back to this. Is they mean that I speak to Jesus every morning when I have my coffee, and He tells me what to do that day. Or Jesus has told me this and he told me that. And that's what they mean by this. Or they mean, no one can tell me how I should think about anything because I have a personal relationship with Jesus and he tells me everything I need to know. So the Bible goes out the window in that case. In that case because it's a personal relationship. And then some people use it to mean, I don't need the church or any other group of Christians because I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I know him. Why do I need to know you? You're just another one like me. Is that what the Bible says about this relationship? That's the question. And so what may start out in people's thinking or in somebody preaching about it or writing about it is a good thing, like that we need to have a one-on-one relationship. You need to let him into your life and then be, be his subject as king it gets distorted. So the first thing is the Bible tells us that we have to relate to Jesus in the fact that Jesus is the son of God. That's the fundamental basis of this relationship. In Romans 1, it says about uh, our relationship, he was declared to be, verse 4, he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So I'm going to tell you something. If you refuse to accept the resurrection of the dead, that Christ literally was raised from the dead, you will automatically have to object to the fact that he's the Son of God and therefore you cannot have a personal relationship with Jesus because he is, first of all, the Son of God. In fact, to become a Christian, you have to make that confession. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, according to Acts chapter 8. And if you are not willing to understand or admit admit that, then there's no possibility of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And there are people who call themselves Christians or religious who won't do that because those are antiquated ideas about being the Son of God. Uh, Moving on, he's our brother, we find out in the Scriptures. Some would say elder brother. I don't know if that's Bible language, but... We become children of God through him because in him dwells all the fullness of this Godhead bodily. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, a bigger context, but we can maybe hopefully pull this out without doing any damage to it. He says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. He who sanctified is Christ. Those who are being sanctified is his children or us, Christians, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And he became a partaker in flesh and blood in the same way. And you find in 1 Corinthians 15, as we mentioned this morning in the Bible class, at the end of time, when all enemies have been subdued, he will will return his power to God and take his place with his brethren. So 
if you want to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you have to understand that he's your brother and that we are children of God through him. We don't have a relationship with God except through Jesus Christ. Now, there's a couple of relationships being talked about there, but people that say they want to have a relationship with God, they cannot have one in this day and age without having a relationship and being, a, uh, being saved by Jesus Christ because that's where God said it had to be. That's how we have this relationship because he's, a, he's God's son. And, and we know from the scriptures, as far as this relationship we have, that Jesus is Lord. And everyone that will confess that Jesus is Lord will do so to the glory of the Father, you see. That's why, for example, in Acts 2 and verse 36, he says, let, all there, let therefore all the house, that Peter says, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, I don't think they, we might miss the significance of that idea of a Lord because we use it. We use his name in vain all the time. Lordy, Lordy, look who's 40. Lord this and Lord God that. And we use these words so casually in our culture. Uh, the Jews didn't do this. At least the re respectful Jews didn't do this then. When he says he made him both Lord and Christ, they understood that that meant someone who you had to be in subjection to. That he'd been given power and authority. And, in, and he was God's chosen one to do this. That's what the word Christ means. You have this reading in 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So he's the Lord. We become children of God through him. He's the one that we have to obey. He's the one that we have to submit to. So all this nice talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus there's this aspect very clearly in the scriptures that that personal relationship involves the relationship of a master to a servant. It involves a brotherly relationship, but it also involves the relationship that's unequal of a master to a servant. He's the Lord, which implies obedience. Our culture does not like that word obedience. It doesn't like the word duty, for example. It doesn't like the word obedience or obey. Because it implies that you have to do what somebody else wants you to do. That's rejected completely and totally. Well, unless you're going to submit to some government rule that they make and you can submit to that. But they, the idea of them being in submission to anybody to tell them how to live is completely foreign. Now, look, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to understand this. That it involves submitting to a Lord. And his will becomes predominant in your life. His will becomes uh, what, what you are interested in, in doing and obeying. It also goes along with this, obviously, that he is the Savior. Who needs saving? People that are lost. Amen. And that's the problem we have preaching the gospel in our age. It's probably always been the problem. But I know it's a problem in our age. Because in order for, to, for the gospel to save anyone, they have to understand first that they are lost. And, and not just uh, confused or whatever the case may be, but lost. Not mistaken, but lost. And that implies sin. It implies alienation from God. Very difficult to get modern people to understand that that's how, what they are. That, and the truth is, they don't feel it. I read an article sometime back, I don't, know the, I don't know the title of it, but I know the gist of it was basically saying 
and talk about evangelism, if you keep approaching your modern neighbors and friends with the idea that, that they're sinners and they need the Savior, you're never going to make any headway with them. If you go try to teach them your life is bad because you're not, your life is terrible and you're all that because you're not a Christian, they're going to look at you like you're crazy because their life isn't that bad. In their view, they don't think their life is that bad at all in modern America. Life is pretty good overall to them, especially with respect to changing their behavior about something or changing their idea. Now, let me tell you something. Unless the only people that have ever really truly responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ are people that have the whatever it takes to say, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, I'm lost. Without that feeling, there's no way to save. Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which is lost, John 19, 10. So if you're not lost, you can't be saved. So if you come to God and think, well, I've done all these things all my life, I've been religious all my life, blah, blah, blah. You, go, you come to God to present Him with all your medals on your chest. You can be baptized if you want, but you won't be saved because you've never been lost in your life. And that's the problem. But So He's a Savior. And without Him, without this understanding, He's the Savior. And... Uh, that we're sinners, that all of sin falls short of the glory of God. Without that understanding, you can't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's based on that. We're going to come and eat this supper here in a little while in remembrance of his death. What, that, what we're supposed to be remembering there is that he died because we need him to die because we're sinners. Only a small percentage of the people in the world will ever believe that truly believe and understand that. And it's getting smaller because it doesn't fit the modern worldview that all of us are pretty good people and we just have a few symptoms of you know, mental illness or whatever it may be, but we're not really sinners. There's something interesting in that lecture, by the way. I'm going to come back to this. That lecture I gave he said, you know, words are signposts and they, they signify a pointing, pointing you somewhere. So if you tell somebody that they're sick, and I hear that the wicked things being done in our society, people will say, ooh, that person's insane or crazy. No, they're evil. Okay? If I say, so, though, somebody's sick, I'm pointing them to a physician, to a doctor to heal them. I'm pointing them away from Jesus Christ to a secular physician to heal them. And he'll give him drugs and therapy and make him better. I point him away. But if I say, you're a sinner, I automatically point him to Jesus Christ. So the description of how, how you describe the terminology you use to describe what's wrong points people as a sign to either a, the secular world or to Jesus Christ by what you say. So be careful about what you say about people who act bizarrely and do bad things. It's not, it's not a syndrome that's wrong with us. It's, a, it's sin that's wrong, not a syndrome. And that's the problem. Almost all these things that go on in our society which are bad and, 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 and that we do, we want to describe them as psychological illnesses or something, but they're, they're sin. It's a hard thing to say. Now, I don't want to talk about, I want to make things sin that are not sin, but that's what it is. But Jesus is also king. You know, he told Pilate, uh, Jesus, he was asked, are you a king? And he said, well, my kingdom is not of this world, John 18. By that statement, Jesus says, yes, I have a kingdom, but it's not the kind you think it is. It's not the kind of kingdom that you have on this earth. Because if it were, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. 
So yes, Jesus has a kingdom and he's the king. And we see from Acts 2.38 that he was seated at his resurrection on the throne of David as king when he was raised from the dead. And that's the thing even many religious people today do not expect. Or James 4 says there's one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? There's one lawgiver, that's Jesus Christ, who is the king. And uh, we have to understand that's what he is. Now, it's difficult for modern Americans in particular to understand the concept of obeying a king or being subject to a king. We, we don't live under a king. I don't do no curtsies to no queens, as one might say, in proper American English. Right? Yeah. Not going to curtsy to the queen. Not going to bow before the king. We're Americans. That's all well and good. But now we have to get our mind right in serving Christ. Because he is the king. He alone is able to judge. He alone is able to dictate to us. And so hopefully you can get your mind wrapped around that properly. He's also the judge. Acts 17 and verse 31 says that he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. There's a day coming when every person will stand before this one judge, Jesus Christ. And he will judge the living and the dead by his will, by his word. He said, my words will judge you in the last day. And that's the one we have to understand. So he then is our judge. Now, if you want to have a relationship with Jesus, these are some of the things that you have to acknowledge. This is different than, you know, than be, Jesus being your, you know, partner in coffee breaks or something. I don't know how to describe what I'm saying. It's a little bit different than that. It's, it's more serious and intense than the way we talk about having a relationship with our... He's not just another girlfriend for you or boyfriend. That's not Jesus. He can be close to you. He cares. But his relationship is so much bigger than that. And that's what we have to understand who he is. And most of these things deal then with us acknowledging that fact. Uh, we also, uh, hang on, I think I did something wrong here. The other thing about this is that the idea of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is true. That Jesus Christ relates to us as individuals, and this pertains to us as an individual. There is a sense in which we as a church or group or all the saved in the whole world or whatever relate to Jesus Christ as Christ's body. And we can talk about that in another lesson. But for the sake of this lesson about a personal relationship, we're, we're dealing with the fact that, yes, Christ's relationship with us and many things he says to us pertain to us as individuals because we can only come to Christ as individuals. Some of you, maybe some of you listening, when you were a newborn, your parents took you to the priest and the priest sprinkled water on you and baptized you and so forth based on their faith. Because they wanted, to get, wanted you to be saved from original sin or whatever it might be. I have to, hate to tell you this, but that's not Bible baptism. And that didn't make you a Christian. And it doesn't save you. Because the only people that can come to Christ are people that personally, individually, have renounced their sin and submitted to him. And have been baptized into his body in accordance with his wishes, his desires, to be buried with him in baptism and raised up to walk in newness of life. An infant can't do that. Children, little children can't do that. 
They don't have the understanding to do those things. And so many young children, you may, you can talk them into it, but they're going to be doing it because that you think they want you to do, you know, I'm talking, what am I saying here? They think you want them to do it, and that's why they do it. I've, I've baptized many people uh, over the years who have come to me and said, well, when I was a young person, I didn't really, I was baptized, but I really didn't understand what I was doing. I, just doing it because others did it or thought my parents wanted me to, and they want me to baptize them. They say baptize them again. Well, I try to say, well, you can't be baptized. You don't need to be baptized more than once. Either you were baptized when you were young or you weren't. And if you didn't do it for the right reason, with the right understanding, you weren't baptized. Okay, You need to be baptized. You were just getting wet, as it were, and you didn't have the proper understanding, and your heart wasn't right. And God will not accept that. Now, sometimes what it indicates in some people is that they've just grown a lot. They've grown. They were young. They inten- they meant to do what they did. They understood it. They, they wanted to do it. They were sincere. And then they they struggled with that. And now they have a greater understanding. And, and, they're will- and they just need to repent and get back on track. But we all come to Christ as individuals. Nobody can do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you. No one can come to Christ because it is personal in that sense. And we have to continually choose to submit, you see, as individuals. It doesn't work any other way. If we, we have to choose to submit. Every day, all the time, we choose to submit. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So, the faithful teach other people. You can't teach children and babies this thing. Only those who know. So you have to continually choose to submit. Whatever you do, Paul says in Colossians 3, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. One of the most important, I was standing here yesterday, I was somewhere talking to this. I didn't know this young lady. She was probably in her 20s, talking to an older friend of mine. She had a mask on, so I didn't recognize her anyway, but we're talking about marriage, and she, she apparently has a boyfriend. And I was saying, you know, it, it, like I've told you before, when I do a wedding ceremony, I specifically say, I'm not asking you, do you love one another? I'm asking you, will you love one another? The oath you take when you get married, if you take any kind of an oath, and, and I think many of them are biblical, some are not, is... I promise to love, honor, and cherish, or obey, or whatever it may be. You're promising to love. He's not asking you in the value you take. You didn't say. You didn't say. Well, I love you now. I feel have. I have good feelings about you, and my emotions are all nice towards you. That's not what it. That's not what a wedding is about. That's not what a marriage is about. It's about choosing to love that person every day, even when they're unlovable. It's a choice you make. I tell her that. Pointing to Judy, in case you can't see. I have to choose to love you every day. You have to choose to love me. And some days that's harder than others. Right? But it's a choice you make to center your affections on one person and do what's right toward them. Do what's good and right that God shows you. It's the same thing with Jesus Christ. Some days you feel close to him. It's easy to do this or do that. Other days you struggle. And when you're going through difficulties in life, a lot of people struggle with this relationship because God seems far away. He doesn't care. Doesn't he notice this? And so you have to choose to obey. 
Because, once again, you're a servant. But you choose that as an individual. The fact that everybody in the church might be faithful or you think they are and doesn't save you at all. Doesn't save. It can encourage you. It can help you to make the right choice. But you have to choose as an individual what you're going to do. And in the end, all of us are going to be judged as individuals. Scriptures say, the verse you know, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever. That's not talking about a nation of Jews or a nation of Gentiles. That's individuals. Whoever chooses to obey. And he loved the whole world, all the people, all the sinners. Because he came to save those people. That's why. And the love of Christ isn't that he approves of the sinners. He, he doesn't approve of the sinners. He loves them, and that's why he gave his son. He did some love, again, shown to be an action. He did something for them, in spite of their actions, that was the right thing to do. And when Peter opened his mouth there after dealing with the issue of Cornelius being a Gentile, and him and the vision he saw, and actually we won't go into all that, but he says, in truth I perceive, Acts 10, 34, that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness will be accepted by him. Whoever. I haven't done it before, but I, I'll go look up the word whoever, whosoever in the New Testament is filled with it. That's an important concept. But whoever in any nation, he doesn't say I'm going to save this nation, save that nation. Nope. Whoever within any one of these nations. So it's an individual. And then he, he says... The serious verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 through Paul, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Well, that's an important verse for modern Protestants to listen to. Because they will tell you there's nothing you can do to be lost once you're saved. Really? This verse says you're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the things that you do in the body, whether good or bad. Each one will do that. So when I get there, I can't say, well, you know, I'm married to Judy and so forth. Or she can't say, yeah, but my husband was a preacher. Yeah, that's real nice. I've met plenty of people who think that because their daddy was a preacher, they got something on their side. No. Usually the reason I'm talking to them is because their daddy being a preacher messed them all up. But <laughs> the fact is, just like it did my kids, but the fact is, it doesn't matter who your mother or daddy is. Is that good news or bad news? Well, I guess it's both. It's good, it's good news in this way. Doesn't matter what advantages or disadvantages you had, how they treated you, who they were in society, how much money they had, what position they had. Jesus Christ wants you, whosoever. That's the good news. The bad news is that you still have to do something about it. You are responsible. We don't like that. We want Adam to be responsible. We want Eve to be responsible. Certainly not me. Not going to work that way. And then, let me look at a couple things here of what this doesn't mean. What this idea of a personal relationship doesn't mean. And, and this is maybe what I want you 
what, part of what I want you to take away today. You, you knew all the stuff I just told you. You already know that, right? Boring. You already know. But what modern people often mean when they say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus is more like what we're going to talk about now. What, what, it doesn't mean that there are different standards for each person. That's what we like to think. That there's a different truth for you than for me. Different standard because you were abused and I wasn't, or you're rich and I'm poor, or you're white and I'm black, or whatever it may be. There's somehow different standards for different people. This idea of a personal relationship with Jesus does not mean that. That it's personal and that you get to have your own designer religion. Everybody gets to make their own designer religion that suits their idea. And you go on the internet and read what people write, and this is what you see that they're doing. They're make, they make up their own designer religion. And they don't need to go to church because church is too rigid in their view, which means that they don't get to do what they want. Everybody has to do the same thing. You know, when I was in school, uh, you know, I, I really liked school a lot when I was a kid. I was a little nerdy, little, you know, pointy-headed, pencil-neck geek, you know. I liked school. But I have to tell you, I thought I was smarter than all the rest of the people. And I, didn't have to do, I didn't really have to do everything they had to do because, you know, I was me. You, know, you ever notice this to me, Judy? It's my defining characteristic. That I, I get to do what Mike wants because Mike is special. Okay? And so... I thought I could come to class late. I thought I could not turn in this homework or whatever. I, I didn't have to worry about computating all the math problems correctly because I knew what they were talking about. I understood the concepts. You know, all those kind of special things. Doesn't work too well. <laughs> uh, and maybe that's why I became a preacher, so I could beat myself into submission. It's not. It's still a work in progress. But the fact is, we don't get to make up our own standards about what's right or wrong or how I should act in Christ or what, how Christ should relate to me. We all are in the same boat about that together. And so we have to understand that. It, it doesn't mean we're, we're, we're free to choose, it should say, our own worship. We can't say, well, God gave me this talent, so I'm going to do that to worship God. I don't need to go to church because my talent is needlepoint, and so I'll just do needlepoints and worship God. My talent's running, so I'll run along Green River Parkway on Sundays, and that's my religion. I'll serve God that way. I told Gary this morning, we'd come over, we'd go that way to come to the radio show for some reason. Anyway, we'd go Green River Parkway from my house, and uh, I didn't see anybody out today. I think they only worship a God of temperate, the temperate zones. Just too cold to worship their God today. So they're staying in. Because most Sundays, most days, they're out in forest worshiping their God on Green River Park, either by walking their pets or running or whatever it may be, jogging, cycling. And this is now then they've communed with nature, communed with God, and they don't need to do anything else because they now obviously I'm being I'm not being included. Many people probably are doing something else, but I'm being gener peaking in generalities. But don't don't mistake the fact that there are exceptions to the fact that I'm right about what I just said. A lot, a lot, a lot of your friends and neighbors, their religion is their exercise and their nature walks and things like that. That's who they, that's their worship. You don't get to choose your worship just because you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Everybody has to work on the same thing, you see. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you, that they're the commandments of the Lord. 
You have to look at the book and say, this is what God says here. I'm not going to make up my own uh, spiritual uh, course of action here. People say, I'm spiritual. What they mean by that is, I get messages from God in my mind, I'm going to do what I want to about that. This is a bane. This is the bane of Christianity. It doesn't mean we're free to choose our own truth about things. And then what's true for you is true for me. This is where we are in society. This is why you got people... Uh, the other day, I have to tell you something. I, I don't know where I was now, but I really needed to use the restroom real badly for some reason. I go to the men's restroom, locked. Go to the women's restroom, open. So for about five minutes, I was a girl. I pictured myself as a girl and used them. I, I, what I identified as a female and went in the women's restroom. Now, see, you're laughing. You did it too, Fred, right? You travel. He's a roadmaster, so I know he knows what I'm talking about. You're laughing. Why is that odd? we got whole groups of people that say you can just identify as to whatever you want to be. Peace person tried to get permission to marry their chandelier. They have an antique chandelier in their house that they love, and they got permission to marry their chandelier. You don't get to choose truth or reality for yourself. We live in that age where that's what we're... This is what's wrong with what's going on around us. We, we, we get mad about this th- a lot of things, but this is the fundamental thing that's wrong with what's going on. Why there's such a great divide in our country. Because some people want to live in, a, in the world as it is. Other people want to live in an imaginary world they make up as they go along. It's not going to work. It's, never, it's not going to work. Those two kinds of people cannot work together in the long run. And that's a shame. It's, it's discouraging. It makes me cry, literally. But that's the fact. Because we don't get to... And in religion, and in Christ, now you're entering a serious matter. And, and that goes to the same thing. They think they can make Jesus whoever they want Jesus to be. Some people make him a, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed European guy. Some people make him a black guy from Africa. Jesus isn't that. You don't get to make Jesus be what you want him to be. You need to read the text, read the Bible, and try to understand over time who Jesus is. And you'll, you can learn. You don't get to choose your own morality. Just because you have a personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus won't mind if I have an affair because after all, I'm a Christian, believe it or not. Or I'm a pastor or whatever. Or he won't mind. Uh, the, va- the majority now of evangelical conservative Christians don't think it's wrong just to sleep with people before marriage. As long as you say you love them. Done surveys. Majority don't think that. That is an unthinkable position from even 60 year, 50, 60 years ago. Unthinkable that people would be that way. But that's what it is. Because we get to choose our own morality. What's right or wrong. That's not acceptable to Jesus, in, with Jesus Christ. And, and it does not mean having a personal relationship with Jesus, the church is unimportant. But the gathering together of God's body, for one thing, not only in public assemblies, but the unity of God's people and the relationships we have with each other is somehow unimportant because you have a pers- personal relationship with Jesus. And that's what a lot of people think. What they say when they say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus, when I talk to them, they're saying to me, I don't interested in any church at all because I worship God on my own. I don't need a church. That's where he goes astray. That's where the good idea, the good statement about this personal relationship goes astray. 
Because you cannot read about Jesus Christ's disciples in the New Testament without reading about them being together as a group of people, worshiping and working together. And it's meant to be that way. Paul goes to great lengths in the Corinthian letters to talk about this unity of this body and in Colossians, how we're a body all knit together, working together in love to build each other up. We are his body. His body has parts that work together. That's why it's so important to come and take this supper. When we take the bread here, we're remembering Christ's body. Part of that is that we remember that we're together in all this. We're together when we sit here and take it. We're Christ's body, and we do it together. So you, you can't divorce yourself from those kind of things. That's why Paul says, I may be delayed, he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, but I write these things so you may know how to, you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar in the ground of the truth. Uh, and so uh, it doesn't mean that there's different standards for each one of us. So how do we get in this relationship quickly? Well, we be, uh, Christ becomes our brother by faith in him. For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ, this is Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ and you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So you enter this relationship through belief in Christ and being baptized in his death to become one. And you enter into a relationship with him when you acknowledge who he is and are baptized. So we we call him Lord by doing the things that he said to do. We conform to his death, burial, and resurrection, and that makes him our Lord. And then we can call him king if we get added to his kingdom by being baptized into the church. In Matthew 16, verse 19, Acts 2.38, you see these references. Well, I'll take the time to read them. And so you enter this relationship through believing that Jesus Christ is God's son, and based upon the fact that you're a sinner and you need forgiveness of sins, you enter into this relationship to have your sins forgiven. You confess who he is. You turn away from your sins. You're buried with him in baptism, and you become a part of this body, the church. Now, you're individually then responsible to do what he says to do, but we are working together with Christ. We're his body, and we need to remember that. Thank you for listening today. Sorry I went too long, but I appreciate it. And I want you to understand the ins and outs of when people say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, you need one. But you need one based upon what the scriptures say about that, not on what uh, people say in order to get around any responsibility for God whatsoever. So we're going to sing the song that uh, Joel has selected here. Let me pull it up. I can't remember what the number is. But uh, uh, number 262, Come to Jesus. Or Gary, she, I said Joel, Gary Barker's chosen for us. And if we can help, help you this morning by baptizing you into Christ or by praying with you about a sin or a problem, you let us know about that right now as we stand and sing.